0: Well, good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning with gratefulness in our hearts and eager expectation. We thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your church, for the opportunity to gather together with your people to sing to one another and to you together. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word together. We pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Open our ears, Lord, to hear the truths of the gospel. Incline our hearts, Father, to you and satisfy us with your steadfast love. Even now, Father, I pray that you would quiet our hearts to listen, to hear from you, that we may be strengthened and built up to display the beauty of the gospel in a world that is lost and in need of redemption, in a world gripped by fear, Lord, that we can point to Christ, our sure and steady anchor. We pray this in the mighty And magnificent name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10, just two verses this morning, but they are verses that are are packed, full of meaning. So please follow along as I read. This is God's holy and authoritative word. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, please bless the preaching and the receiving of your word. Well, just over 20 years ago now, uh, the author J.K. Rowling introduced the world to her character, Harry Potter. Now, I didn't read a lot of books back then, uh, but as my boys have gotten older, we, we've just recently started reading this first book. Now we just are reading it, so no spoilers, no running up to me after the service and telling me what happens because I don't know, and I'm, I'm glad to delay that knowing until we get there. But we just started this book, and in this book, this kid, Harry, he he starts off the book, he doesn't know who he is. He's an orphan. He's adopted. He doesn't know anything about his parents. Uh, He doesn't know uh, anything about them because they died when he was very young, and he was adopted by his uncle and aunt. And what he doesn't know is that he is the chosen one, what he doesn't know is that he's got this inherent magical ability, and sometimes it, stuff just happens when he, when he thinks about it or when he wants something to happen. Sometimes it just happens, but he, he doesn't know what is happening. He can't explain it. And it's not until this character named Hagrid comes along, and Hagrid talks to Harry, and he sends him these letters, and the stuff starts happening, and he takes him to another place. He takes him to a bank and he, where he opens up and sees treasures that he says belong to Harry, and he takes him into a community, and he starts teaching him about who he really is. And it's then that he's able to begin living out who it is that he's been created to be. He lives out this new identity as a result of what he learns, as this chosen one who will live his life in service to others. Here's the point. Harry's identity preceded his behavior. It's not until uh, the revelation of who he is that informs what he does. And listen, the, the truth is that that's the same for you and me this morning. It's the same for us. Until we know who we are in Christ, we will never live the way that God has called us to be. We never will. Our identity precedes our behavior. Our identity precedes our obedience. Who we are informs what we do. This is what we're going to see in our text today. Peter is about to launch into all kinds of practical instructions about how we're to live, how to relate to the world around us. But first, he reminds us of who we are. So this morning, we're going to see Peter gives us four aspects of our identity in Christ. So who are you? First off, verse 9, you are a chosen race. Now, two things that you want to pick up about this, this language. If you have a Bible with cross-references, you'll see all kinds of Old Testament cross-references next to that verse. This language is all lifted from the Old Testament, Exodus 19, uh, Isaiah 43, as well as other places, where this language about God's people Israel is now applied to the church, fulfilling and, and representing that the church is the continuation of God's chosen people. And secondly, this language is corporate. It's second person plural. It's not, he's not writing to you as an individual. He is writing to you, to us, as a people, as a corporate people, as the church. So we want to read this together as the church. So first of all, you are a chosen race. Now, the Greek word behind this word chosen is the same word that we get in, in verse 1, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, where, we, where Peter talks about the elect exiles, elect. So what does it mean to be God's chosen ones? What does it mean to be God's elect? It means that you've been saved by the power of God, as verse 9 t- tells us, called out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now we hear called out of darkness and we don't want to think that this is the same way it is that uh, when it's dinner time, we stick our heads outside the kitchen or out the front door and call our kids into dinner, right? That's not how God calls us out of darkness because here's what happens when, with my call. I stick my head out the front door and I, and I say, kids, time for dinner. And I see one of them pedaling quickly away on his bicycle. I see two of them playing football with a neighbor. I see my youngest one covering his face so that I can't see him, and he's not culpable for anything that his ears pick up. And I see my oldest one sitting on top of a light pole. That's no joke. He's sitting up there, and it's like they can't hear me. See, when I call my kids home for dinner, it's not an effectual call. I can't make them come. Now, I can discipline them for disobedience, certainly, but I can't force them to obey in that moment. Not so with the Lord. How is it that Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave? Jesus looks at the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth. And this man, moments before dead, gets up right away and comes forth. Jesus calls the dead, and they come forth. What can a a dead person do on his own? Nothing. He can't choose to obey, but God calls him, and he obeys. Now, this is what God does to us. We're dead spiritually, and God chooses us and calls us to himself, and that is how we are saved. One day, we're in darkness, and the next day, we realize that we want to know God, One day, I enjoy not reading my Bible. The next day, I have an insatiable appetite and a hunger for God's Word. What happened there? God chose us eternally. God elected us. It means that God called us out of darkness that we were born into because of our sin. Now, listen, this isn't a unique teaching to 1 Peter chapter 2. This is all over the New Testament. This is all over the Bible, I'm going to put up a few verses on the screen that we're just going to look at quickly. John 15, verse 16. This is what Jesus says. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Very clear. Acts 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who appointed them to eternal life? God did that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world.'" 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, "'But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. It couldn't get any more clear than that. God chose you. And finally, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The names of the chosen were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the world. Here's the point. God chose us. He chose us in eternity. He chose us before the world began. And so the testimony of Scripture over and over and over again is this for you. If you are a believer, if you have been born again, you have been chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ by God. Why? Because we were great? Because... God needed us because we were more moral or smarter than others? Because we lived in a better country than others? Because we had a better upbringing than others? Absolutely not. God sovereignly determined to set his love upon us for his own holy purposes, which we will never fully understand. So Peter says, the first thing that you need to know about the church is that all those in the church have been chosen by God. The ESV study Bible says this, in it's comment on this verse. It says, God's grace, rather than human choice, is the ultimate explanation for why some people come to faith and others do not. Now, what does this do to us? This should should bring about a profound and deep humility on our part because it happened before the foundation of the world, before anything that we have done. Why are we Christians? We're not Christians because we're better than anyone else. We're not Christians because we somehow figured it out spiritually or morally. It's not because we studied the Bible enough for, for God to say, okay, you've done it, son. You've arrived. I now choose you. No, we're saved because of His grace alone toward us. Because of His sovereign electing grace, He chose us, which should create in us, which should cultivate a profound and deep humility that pervades every aspect of our existence. He chose you, church, not based on anything in you, but solely because of His sovereign grace. We were dead in our sins, and God brought us to new life for His glory. Amen. Then Peter goes on to say, I could go on all day about this point, but I won't. Peter goes on to say in point two, you are a royal priesthood. Now, we're wearing masks this morning, but we're not, none of us are wearing robes or fancy hats. We don't consider ourselves priests, at least not in that sense. But here Peter says that the church, that you, are a royal priesthood. Now, what does that mean? Priests are individuals who, first of all, have access to God. They're also people who bring others into the presence of God. Peter is saying two very important things to us as the church. First, that we have access to God. We can know Him. Think about that glorious reality. This is the greatest truth of the gospel because of what Jesus Christ has done to bring us to him. We can know God. We can speak to him. We can hear him. We can come into his presence. We can worship him. We can learn from him, and we can walk in a new relationship with him while he's internally changing us, conforming us to his image. It is because Jesus literally comes into us through the power of the Holy Spirit, think about that. Think about the implications of that reality. Brothers and sisters, you cannot get any closer than that. You see, being born again is not simply fire insurance. It's not simply, you know, you say Jesus when you die and you get into heaven, and that's the whole point of Christianity. You just do whatever you want with your life. That is not the gospel. It's not primarily about going to heaven when you die. Being born again is all about knowing God now, and what begins now goes on into eternity. And when Jesus comes back or when we die, all of our impurities will be forever removed so that we can then know God perfectly without the stain of sin, not through a glass dimly, but face to face, and the world will be made new. Amen. How glorious is that? And so it'll be wonderful in the new heavens and the new earth, but that's the culmination of what begins right now. Knowing God, walking with Him, being made in His image, it starts now, church. And that's what priests are all about. That's our job, knowing God. You don't have to go to school for that. It might help. You don't have to Um, you don't have to be ordained for that. It's not a special clerical thing that, that pastors have some special access to God. The priesthood of all believers means that every Christian, every person who has been born again has as much access as any other believer who has ever walked the earth. Think about all the greats of church history. All those great and holy people, you have as much access to the Lord our God as they do. We have that same access to God. So how do we know God like this? We know him through the reading of his word and through prayer. We know him by being engaged in the community of God's people, his bride. We know him by prioritizing the gathering of God's people where we're reminded of this and where we help others with this. We know him through practicing the spiritual disciplines and by stewarding the gifts that he has given us for the building up of his church. So priests, first of all, we have access to God. But please hear this. Priests also, we have a calling. Our calling is to bring others into the presence of God. That's for everyone in here, young and old. We get to usher others into the presence of God. In other words, Christianity isn't a solo act. It's not me and Jesus. It is, a, it is not primarily about you and God. It is we are called to bring other people into contact with the God of the universe. That is a glorious and holy and joy-filled and joy-producing calling. Priests, listen, in America, we need to do this, especially here. Priests are not religious consumers, we don't do church simply by listening to our favorite podcasts and by, by singing in the car. All those are good things. I do, I do all of those things. We don't, we don't go to church just for uplifting music and to get an encouraging word for the week to make you feel good. Priests go to worship to work. They're not passive. They have a calling. They're wanting to bring others into contact with the living God, and Peter is telling us this morning that priests are missionaries. We are a royal priesthood, we are missionaries, we are mediators, agents of reconciliation who tell others who God is and what He has done for us. And if you know that you are a royal priesthood, you will, one, you will enjoy great access to God. You will have communion with God, you will walk with God, you will worship with God, you will rejoice in God, you will feel the amazing love of God, but you will also be an active missionary. You'll be enjoying God and looking at others and saying, you've got to come and see this. You've got to experience this yourself. You've got to taste and see that the Lord is good. You've got to understand the gospel and meet Jesus and come into my community and come into this gathering of God's people where you experience the power of the Holy Spirit on display. You are going to be working to bring others into the presence of God. So I want to ask you this. How often do you eat with unbelievers? Purposefully eat with them. how So that you can learn their story. So you can share the gospel with them and invite them into into the community of God's people. And listen, you will never do this until you realize that you are a royal priesthood. Until you understand that you are a missionary. You won't do missionary and priesthood type of things. But when is the last time you invited someone to church? Or invited someone over for coffee so that, so that you can understand their story. So you can understand their disconnect. Understand why they're far off from God. Why they're hesitant to step into church. Why they're pushing away from the God who, who stands with his arms outstretched. Listen, the word Christian is only used like two or three times in the whole New Testament. But in Christ is used dozens of times and in Christ speaks of someone who is more than simply someone who prayed a prayer one time in their life and goes to church periodically. I'm actually part of the royal priesthood sent on mission for Jesus. That's a very different way of describing our life, isn't it? Next, Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. When Peter says that we are a holy nation, that the church of Jesus Christ is a holy nation, listen, he is saying that we have a new political unity that is greater than any one nation. When the disciples declared that Jesus is Lord, that was a political statement that could get you killed. That wasn't simply a religious statement. We think, as Americans, we have separation of church and state, which we're grateful for. And so we think of Jesus as Lord as simply a religious statement but to say Jesus as Lord in that day and age when the people were forced to say who? Caesar is Lord. That was a political statement. Listen to this. At at age 86, Polycarp, you've heard this name before, Polycarp, 86 years old, the Bishop of Smyrna and disciple of the Apostle John, he was brought to the Roman authorities in order to confess that Caesar is Lord. Though doing so would have saved his life, Polycarp refused, and he was executed for it. Polycarp refused to bow his knee to nationalism, declaring that Caesar, rather than Jesus, is Lord of his life. For those of us who have been born again, Jesus is our king, and we are living for his kingdom, and his kingdom is not the United States of America. And I love our country. I love it. This isn't a statement against our country, but rather it's a statement about our transnational kingdom. We have a universal kingdom. Jesus is our king, and our kingdom is a new political reality that displaces every other nation and every other political agenda. People sometimes say that Christians get too political, but the gospel of Jesus is political. When you say Jesus is Lord, what you're saying is no other leader is. I bow my Jesus and not to fill in the blank, whoever the president is, whoever the leader is, whoever whoever the governors are. Peter calls us, Peter will call us in just a, a, a few verses later to honor the emperor. That is good and appropriate as Christians. We're not, however, to bow our knee to the emperor and confess that Caesar is Lord. There's a difference in that. And we're going to get to that in just a couple of weeks and, and expound upon that. But that means, listen, it means that we have a greater unity in our church. There's a diversity here. There are all kinds of political opinions in here that conflict with one another people that lean toward the right, people that lean toward the left, people in the middle, people off the spectrum altogether. And Peter is saying that your political party is not what unites you. You do not look to red or to blue to find where the Christians are. The blood of Christ unites you, and you have a deeper unity than the flag that we salute. You have a deeper unity than your nationality or your ethnicity or any other worldly factor. Amen? And then fourth, Peter says to the church, look, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now listen, if you, if you forget everything else I've said to this point, listen to this, because this truth will change your life. One, you will, you will never feel sorry for yourself again. You will never feel unwanted. You will never feel uncared for. Look at what Peter says here. You are a people for God's own possession. Peter is saying that God chose us because he wanted us. We are his treasured possession. What are your treasured possessions? Ever since my boys were were very small, they would collect various knickknacks, and they would have some place that they kept them, maybe a special drawer or a box And they would fill them with all kinds of things, ranging from rocks and sticks that they find interesting to slingshots and baseball cards. You look in there and you wonder with each item, why did this boy choose this seashell or these coins to stick stick in his special drawer? It wasn't because each item was inherently valuable, right? Most of these things in the box are are definitely not inherently valuable. You couldn't sell them at a pawn shop, mostly. But he put those things in his treasure box because he loved them for whatever reason. He treasured them, and so he put them in his special drawer. It's so unique and and precious what he has put in there. But everything in there, listen, everything in there is his own special possession that he chose and that he loved. He loved. It's something that he treasures and that he delights in. And that's what Peter is saying here about the church. Listen, this is unbelievable. If you are a believer in Christ, you are in God's treasure box. You are his special possession. He chose you and put you in there. And don't forget, he chooses dead things. And when he puts them into his special treasure box, they become alive. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, and He chooses you as His own possession, and you come alive to God in Christ. We were chosen, brothers and sisters, because He loved us, not because we are inherently valuable. And what Peter is saying here is that if you can get a grasp of, on your identity in Christ, if you can learn who you are and learn to see that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, but above all, God's own possession, look, there will be simultaneously an unspeakable power and a boldness about you as well as a deep humility. What Peter's saying is that you were chosen in spite of your weakness and sin. And that should create in us a deep humility because it has nothing to do with us, but you are also God's special people, His own possession. And that should create a a crazy boldness about you, shouldn't it? And that leads to our final point. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. Why? For what purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Proclaim. That's a simple so that. That's a simple job description, isn't it? I mean, our calling is so simple. Be absolutely, totally, radically aware of that which is excellent, and then share it with others. Do you hear me? Be totally, radically aware of what God has done, what is excellent of who He is, and then share it with others. Imagine for a moment that that you're blind, blind since childbirth. You hear about this new procedure with a new doctor in town, and this doctor has chosen you to try this new procedure out for free. You've never seen before. This is a priceless opportunity. The top optometrist in the world brings his brand new technology and he chooses you at no cost to you. And you're led by the hand into the surgery room and the doctor talks to you about what he's going to do and he puts you under. And you wake up and it works. You open your eyes You're able to see, you're able to walk out of there, not led by the hand, but by by seeing with your eyes, not not by the guiding of a stick, but but you're able to discern the, the objects and the people that you've always heard and imagined, but now you can see them for the first time. Everything works together perfectly. You are literally walking around like a new person, seeing things and colors and people that you've never seen before. Everything looks different. Imagine how overwhelmed you would be. A good friend of mine is, has been colorblind for years, and he recently spent a large sum of money to buy glasses that correct the color, that allow him to see color for the first time in decades. And he posted a video. This is what he did. He posted a video on social media because he wanted everybody to be aware of this. And he's, he's posting this video of him walking around, and he's, he's describing the greenness of the trees, and the, and the blueness of the sky, and, and the colors on people's shirts, and faces, and hair. And he's mesmerized. He's in awe, and he's, he, just, he thinks it's wonderful. He thinks it's amazing what he can do now because of this new gift. What would you do with this? You want to tell everyone you know. You want to call your family and friends and tell them this amazing news. You want to call your neighbors and tell them what this doctor did for you and you're definitely going to get in your, your, to your blind friends and proclaim this amazing news about this doctor that can give sight to the blind. I once was blind, but now I see. You are going to proclaim the excellencies of this doctor that healed you. That's what verse 9 is all about. God has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We who once were blind can now see, and how marvelous is that, do you, do you lose yourself in awe and wonder over what God has done in your life? And because of what he's done, we're, we're natural evangelists, aren't we? I mean, we're all natural evangelists. When we find something excellent, you share it with others, right? When you find a great restaurant, you tell everybody that you know, hey, you ought to go, go over to this place, they have great tacos. You find a new band you love and you make it known Brothers and sisters, if, if you're not sharing Christ with others, it may be that you have lost the, the sense of awe and, and awareness of his surpassing excellencies. You may, you may have forgotten the goodness of the gospel. Perhaps you're no longer truly amazed by Grace. Because if you are aware of his excellencies, you will declare his excellencies. True worship leads to witness. It always does. This is, what, this is why we're here. This is why you have been chosen, that you may proclaim the excellencies. Proclaiming is like doing show and tell at school. Some of us are older than others, and it may be difficult to remember that season of show and tell. But we're bringing something into the presence of other people. And we're trying to say, look, appreciate this and enjoy this as much as I do because it is amazing. When my sons do show and tell with with one of their treasures, there is an energy in their telling. Have you ever seen a young child do show and tell? There's a a joy on their face and and they're excited. They want you to enjoy this like they enjoy this. You can see on their face that they love what they're talking about. They will, they will take your questions. They want you to be enamored with it the way that they are. And that's what we do as God's chosen people. If you know who you are, if you know what God, who God has made you to be, and if you are amazed by the mercy that you have received, if you know the riches that He has given you, if you understand that you are God's possession that identity will change you into God's show-and-tell people, God's display people. And you'll be a walking, living demonstration of God's grace. Listen, when we understand who we are, our obedience flows out of that reality. We will never glorify God or enjoy God or proclaim his excellencies to others if you don't first see the surpassing excellencies of the Lord Almighty at work in your life. This is what led Charles Spurgeon to say the following. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an impostor. Recollect that you are either trying to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ, or else you do not love Him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about Him. Of course, I do not mean by that that those who use the pen for Christ are silent, for they are not and those who help others to use the tongue or spread abroad that which others have written are doing their part well. But I mean this, that man who says, I believe in Jesus, but does not think enough of Jesus ever to tell another about him by mouth or pen or tract is an imposter. Proclaiming his excellencies is simply part of the new identity that we have in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. Now, do you see how wonderful this is? Peter says that the church of Jesus Christ is the new race, the new religion, the new people, and he's saying none of these things should divide us anymore, but the church that has been united into one giant family. Once he says in verse 10, we were not a people but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It is in the light that we receive mercy and forgiveness. It is only when we're brought into His marvelous light that we receive these things. It is in the light that Jesus redeems and heals. Often the darkness is where we we struggle. That's where we try to cover up and pretend, trying to perform our way into acceptance. But in the light... We are received as we are. God washes us and cleanses us. We try to deal with our sin and guilt and our shame in all kinds of ways, and all the while, God is simply inviting us with his arms outstretched, not his finger pointed, saying, come, come to me in the light and let me purify you. That is the amazing invitation. That is the greatest news in the world, and we have the joyful privilege to proclaim that. Do you realize that, that this amazing news, this good news, comes on the, on, the, on the heels of the worst news? You see, Jesus was the chosen one. Jesus was the royal priest. Jesus was the holy one. Jesus was the one who brought God's kingdom to this earth. And, of course, he was absolutely one with the Father, and yet, listen— When Jesus cried out for mercy, he received none. God poured his wrath on Jesus on the cross so that we could be his people who receive his mercy. Jesus received wrath so that we could receive mercy. He exchanged places with you and me, and what a glorious exchange that is. The mercy of God is what makes us his missionaries. It is what makes us his priesthood. It is what makes us his people. When we receive it, when we experience God's mercy and we taste it, we go and tell others about it. We have died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've been resurrected with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have a new identity through Jesus Christ. I also know that God right now is at work redeeming all things. He is making all things new. He rescued us. He is putting us back together into this new political reality called the kingdom of God. And we are here, we're we're in this church trying to figure this out, how to live this out, how to live out these new identities as his chosen race, as his royal priesthood, as his holy nation. You know what this is? This is a preview, as, as Pastor Bart mentioned earlier, of what is happening right now in heaven. This is what we're doing. We are living out these new identities before God, bringing his kingdom into fulfillment. Before he makes all things new, this is a preview of what is happening in his kingdom forever. We have been given the power of Christ in us to live out this new reality in our lives and to invite others into his presence, into, to enjoy this glorious salvation. That's what we get to invite others to. It's better than restoring the sight to the blind. It is better than giving uh, color corrective glasses to those who can't see colors. It is better than any other news that this world has to offer. Listen, how many times do you hear in the news or or see on on social media statements like, what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with people? This is the age of self-righteous outrage, isn't it? Everybody's angry. Listen, Christians never have to ask that question. Our entire story is built around the reality that the perfect man entered our story and we killed him on a criminal's cross. People do horrible things because deep down we have, we have something terrible inside of us called sin. We know what's wrong with the world because we know what's wrong with us. It's called sin, it's brokenness, it's rebellion against God, our creator, each of us wanting to wanting answer to no one but ourselves. And Christians also know that we have hope because what God has already done to fix it, that suffering and death, listen, your suffering and death have an expiration date. They will end. Jesus Christ defeated death when he was resurrected from the grave, and one day we will beat death. We will beat suffering through Jesus Christ. Yet the Father sent Jesus, his son, listen, to experience tragedy for our sake. That Jesus was the perfect man, sinless, and yet he was brutally murdered and tortured by those in authority over him. And everybody looking at it, it looked like a senseless evil. But later in this chapter, in in verse 24, Peter tells us that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, brothers and sisters, we have been healed. I want to invite the, the band to join me back on the stage. Let's lead us in one final song. Church, do you see what God has done? To love you. Do you see what he has done? God is not waiting for you to clean yourself up. He's not waiting for you to figure it out. That's what we often do, but not God. No. While we we were yet sinners, Jesus bled and died for us. While we were yet sinners. When all of our sins were in the future... Sometimes we think that as Christians, our, our past sins have been forgiven. But what about, what about the ones we committed today? What about the sins that we will commit next week? The good news is that when Jesus died for you, all of your sins were in the future. God doesn't love some future version of you, brothers and sisters. He loves you now. He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. He came to us. He sent his son to live the life that you couldn't live and to die the death that you deserve. And he offers his mercy and life in his son to you today. He gives us a new identity. Brothers and sisters, that is worth singing about, isn't it? That is worth cultivating in our hearts gratefulness and joy and telling everyone you know. So let's do that together and to one another now as we stand and sing one final song.